Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the audio edition of the Weekly Roundup, where we look through some of the major trends and developments that pertain to the asset and wealth management industry across Singapore, Hong Kong, and mainland China. This episode, we are looking at events that occurred over the week of June 13 through 17 in 2022. So let's dive in. Starting off with a look across developments in Asia-Pacific. Nikkei Asia reports that despite Japan's central government and Tokyo authorities promoting the Japanese capital as an alternative fund location, looking to attract hedge funds from Hong Kong, searching for a new home, their efforts have not yielded the desired results. With Japan's complicated and burdensome tax regime cited as the major reason for this. Were the tax system and regulations improved, some fund managers based in the Fragrant Harbor stated that they would move there, quote, immediately, end quote. But that as things stood, relocation to Tokyo was challenging. There are attractions to Japan, however, with political stability, public security, quality education, and, at least as the yen collapses, affordable living costs. A government initiative aimed at promoting Japan as an international financial center is generally useless for hedge funds, with issues around compensation, carried interest, and capital gains tax all working against the interests of hedge funds searching for a new domicile. In the latest Global Financial Centers Index, a biannual survey ranking the world's financial centers across a range of criteria, Tokyo fell to ninth place in the September 2021 issue and remained there in the March 2022 edition. And it is facing increased competition from Shenzhen and Seoul for its spot. Previously, Tokyo had consistently been ranked third among Asian financial centers. Whether Japan seizes the opportunity to reform and make Tokyo truly competitive as a hedge fund center remains to be seen. Moving on, Bloomberg reports, citing an independent report, that the breakup of the Asian unit of HSBC, a British financial institution with historic ties to Hong Kong and China, could unlock up to 26.5 billion US dollars in shareholder value, a fifth of its current market value. With other scenarios, seeing the Asian business or just the retail operations in Hong Kong spun off. Ping'an Insurance, a Chinese financial conglomerate and HSBC's largest shareholder, is reportedly in favor of such a move, with a UK paper stating that it commissioned the independent report, and in April 2021 reportedly held discussions with HSBC regarding the breakup of the bank to separate its Asian business from which HSBC derived nearly 65% of its profits in 2021. Despite recently relocating several high-level staff to Asia, executives are reportedly not in favor of the proposal and have begun analysis to counter the claims, noting that much of Asia's revenue is booked from Western clients in the region. Further, none of HSBC's other large shareholders have come out in favor 
of Ping An's proposal thus far. Whether HSP follows in the steps of Prudential, a British multinational insurer who successfully spun off its Asian businesses whilst keeping its London listing, or if any of the three proposed scenarios eventuate, will be interesting to follow. Next up, the Climate Bonds Initiative, an independent organisation focused on green and sustainable bond issuance and standards, has released a report in collaboration with HSBC on the developments in ASEAN's sustainable debt market. The highlights of the report include ASEAN's sustainable debt market had a record issuance of green, social and sustainability, or GSS, debt totaling 24 billion US dollars, up over 76% from 13.6 billion US dollars in 2020. Aggregate ASEAN GSS debt reached 54.5 billion US dollars at the end of 2021, up from 30.4 billion US dollars the year prior. Singapore remained the regional leader, issuing 13.6 billion US dollars of GSS debt over 2021, up from 4.9 billion US dollars in 2020. Nearly two thirds, 63.9%, of GSS deals originating from ASEAN in 2021 were green, followed by sustainability at 35.5%. Finally, non financial corporate issuers were responsible for 79% of the ASEAN green volumes in 2021, while sovereign issuance continued to dominate the social and sustainability market, responsible for 51% of issuances. Moving on, Hubbis reports that a recent survey commissioned by DBS and Manulife, a Singapore bank and Canadian insurer respectively, found that only 32% of couples in Hong Kong had discussed holistic financial plans and that 45% of couples were likely to prioritise travel planning over their finances. Further, whilst 62% of parents planned to leave a financial legacy for their children, only 25% had spoken to a financial planner about how to build wealth and who would receive it. Additionally, whilst financial freedom was a goal for 63% of respondents, 33% had never consulted a financial advisor for professional advice. Down in Singapore, whilst 77% of respondents had tried to figure out how much they needed to save for retirement, only 19% were aware of the exact amount needed. Further, 36% of respondents believed they are able to pursue a comfortable retirement with their savings and investments. 30% expected they would need to downgrade their lifestyle and habits in retirement. And among those who have started saving for retirement, 56% had not sought advice of any kind. The average Singaporean plans to retire at aged 61. And for those who have started planning for retirement, they did so at 38 years old. The survey aims to uncover the retirement attitudes, expectations, and preparedness among 6,000 pre-retirees in Asia. In Singapore, a total of 1,008 Singaporeans and permanent residents between the ages of 40 and 60 took part in the research. And in Hong Kong, 
1,409 respondents aged between 21 and 65 were polled. Next up, Ignites Asia reports that fund managers across Asia-Pacific will find it challenging to keep their operating costs down this year, especially with regards to rising employee costs as the Great Resignation makes its impact felt. Reportedly, T. Rowe Price and BlackRock, two US-based global asset managers, gave most of their employees pay increases of 4% and 8% respectively. Higher compliance expenditures incurred from adapting to sanctions and arising from complicated travel arrangements are other areas seeing rising costs. A recent report by LexisNexis, a data analytics provider, estimates that the total cost of financial crime compliance among financial institutions in five markets amounted to 40.8 billion US dollars over 2022. How Asia's asset managers respond to these cost pressures and whether they are in whole or in part passed on to investors across the region remains to be seen. Moving on, Capgemini, a French consulting firm, and their latest annual World Wealth Report notes that Europe has leapfrogged Asia-Pacific to take second place in the world wealth rankings, whilst North America retains the top spot. Whilst the global high net worth investor population grew by 7.8% over 2021, and their wealth grew by 8%, COVID-19 lockdowns across Asia saw the region's wealth growth slow to 4.2%, matching the growth in high net worth investors across the region. China was especially hard hit, with its wealth growth falling to 6.2%, down from 13.5% in 2020. Singapore saw an increase in its high net worth investor population of 4.2%, with wealth growing by 5.4%. And Hong Kong saw a decline in wealth of 2%. These findings correspond to another report released by Henley & Partners, an investment advisory firm, which forecasts that China will lose circa 10,000 US dollar millionaires in 2022, approximately 1% of its high net worth investor population. Hong Kong is forecast to have a net outflow of 3,000 high net worth investors. Combined, this exodus is forecast to see 65 billion US dollars in wealth leave these jurisdictions. Replaying 2019, which saw 100 billion US dollars in assets leave Hong Kong and mainland China. Hong Kong has reportedly seen over 540,000 individuals receive a British national overseas passport since 2019, 60% of which were issued in 2020. So much of the wealth leaving the territory may head to the UK. Despite this, Henley and Partners expects Chinese high net worth investors to increase by 60% over the next 10 years, compared to 20% growth in the USA and 10% across major European markets. As of 2021, Capgemini estimated APAC contained 7.2 million high net worth investors with combined wealth of 25.33 trillion US dollars. Moving on to Singapore. Fund Selector Asia, citing data from Morningstar, a data provider, 
reports that fund flows have slowed significantly over the first quarter of 2022 compared to the prior quarter, with 1.55 billion Singapore dollars of net inflows reported over the first three months of 2022. This was down significantly from the 4.4 billion Singapore dollars reported in the fourth quarter of 2021, a near 65% decline. With conflict in Ukraine, global inflationary pressure, and tightening monetary policies cited as driving the decline. Within specific asset classes, equity funds amounted for 1.05 billion Singapore dollars of net flows, down from 1.9 billion Singapore dollars the previous quarter as redemptions surged. Allocation funds were second highest, with 457 million Singapore dollars in net inflows, and money market funds rounded out the top three categories with net inflows of 446 million Singapore dollars. Of the remaining categories, all bar commodities funds saw net outflows over the period. Next up, Ignites Asia reports that Endowas, a Singapore-based robo-advisor, has partnered with Amundi, a French asset manager, to offer four retail funds exclusively on the digital platform. The funds have fees ranging from 0.05% to 0.2% and are touted as being the lowest in Singapore. The move follows Endowas' recent partnering with Partners Group to offer high net worth investors and family offices access to private equity funds with lower charges, as covered in previous episodes. The four funds on offer are the MSCI World Fund, MSCI Emerging Markets Fund, Prime USA Fund, and Bloomberg Global Aggregate 500 million fixed income fund. Stashaway, another robo-advisor, has launched flexible portfolios for investors in Singapore and Malaysia. The portfolios will enable clients to, quote, customize their core portfolios with impact on their risk being estimated, end quote. So investors can ensure their portfolio's risk remains constant even if they switch investment focus. And now up to Hong Kong. The Hong Kong Investment Fund Association the territory's lobby group for fund managers, has urged incoming chief executive Mr. John Lee of the need to remove quarantine rules and open the special administrative region up to restore its place as an international financial centre, as reported by Bloomberg. The head of the HKIFA, Ms. Sally Wong, noted that the financial industry in the territory had been, quote, battered end quote, by quarantine measures, and that the longer it was stuck in the restrictive mode, the more that Hong Kong's relevance and competitiveness was reduced in the international arena. The HKIFA is preparing a wish list of its expectations to present to Mr. Lee, including the resolution of teething issues across the Stock Connect program with mainland China. Additional items reportedly include block and holiday trading, increasing access to IPOs in mainland China, relaxation across other cross-border programs with mainland China, and allowing China's private pension products to invest via Hong Kong's 
Mandatory Pension Fund. With a meeting of global financial leaders targeted to transpire in the territory in November this year, as covered in a previous episode, the HKIFA assumes that authorities should share any plans and assumptions they have regarding when Hong Kong will open again to the world and start, quote, firing on all cylinders, end quote. Next up, the South China Morning Post reports that Samsung Asset Management, a Korean asset manager, has launched Hong Kong's first blockchain-focused exchange-traded fund product. The fund will track companies involved in the blockchain, including cryptocurrencies, though not directly. Set to launch on 23 June, the fund has raised 12 million US dollars from institutional investors. It will seek to invest in up to 60 companies that are involved in the development or utilization of blockchain technology, and it will be Samsung Asset Management's sixth ETF in Hong Kong. Moving on, the Financial Times reports that several Chinese investment banks in Hong Kong have reduced headcount, reportedly due to the dearth of IPO activity in the territory and following an expansion in 2021 in anticipation of increased secondary listings of Chinese companies traded on American bourses. The list includes Haitong International, China Merchants Bank International, and Guotai Yunnan International, all Hong Kong arms of mainland Chinese financial institutions. An international accounting firm expects 2022 fundraising in the territory to decrease by up to 40% compared to last year, with a wider economic slowdown and regulatory overhang cited as the main reasons. The firm estimates that over 2022, Hong Kong will have 99 deals raising a total of 331.7 billion Hong Kong dollars, a 40% decline from the prior year. As of end May 2022, data shows 21 listings on the Special Administrative Region's main board, which raised 17 billion Hong Kong dollars, which is down 46% and 91% year-on-year respectively. Global banks are also lowering their local headcount with Credit Suisse, a Swiss bank, Deutsche Bank, a German lender, and HSBC, among others, reportedly laying off staff. Moving up to China. Bloomberg reports that representatives of several leading foreign banks in China were summoned to meetings with Communist Party officials, where the leading topic of discussion was executive pay, specifically limiting it in the name of common prosperity, and reporting details on how top executives are compensated. Reportedly, regulators warned the group, who included representatives from Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and UBS, to American financial institutions and one Swiss, among others, not to reward their top staff too lavishly, or they risk running afoul of the Communist Party. AMAC. China's fund management industry body and quasi-regulator, recently instructed fund managers to enhance their, quote, social responsibility and capability to serve the economy and the country's strategies, end quote. Accordingly, at least 40% of bonus payments to senior staff should be deferred by at least three years, 
and senior staff should invest at least 20% of their bonuses into financial products issued by their company. Fund managers should invest at least 30% of their bonus in public funds managed by the asset manager, with preference given to funds the individual managers themselves. These rules are similar to those issued by CSRC, China's main securities regulator, in May 2022, and are a continuation of a process begun in January this year and form part of a wider initiative in which President Xi Jinping has sought to exert influence and control over vast areas of China's economy, including with technology companies and financial institutions. The move comes as foreign financial institutions are increasingly chafing under regulatory oversight and political efforts to exert control over their industry, in addition to less than stellar profits from their China operations, with the top six global banks making a reported circa 42 million US dollars in 2021, though this number does not include deals made with Chinese clients outside of China. Offshore IPOs for Chinese companies, the kind of deal in which foreign brokerages would leverage their expertise over their local rivals, over 2021 amounted to just under 30 billion US dollars, and 2022 data to 9 June indicates IPOs of 1.8 billion US dollars, the lowest since 2009 thus far. So 2022 is unlikely to see stellar revenues in this aspect. By contrast, IPOs in China have surged so far in 2022, with a reported 33.8 billion US dollars raised in domestic IPOs. Chinese regulators have denied they asked foreign banks to disclose senior executive pay or that pay should be curbed, with CSRC stating the report was not factual and that no such meetings were held. CSRC did state that establishing a scientific and reasonable compensation system was the basis for maintaining the core competitiveness of the industry, and that itself and other regulators across the world had paid increased attention to compensation systems in recent years to reduce risks from speculative behavior and misaligned incentives. Further, CSRC stated that whilst it issued compensation guidelines, it did not set caps on remuneration, and that it, quote, fully respects the discretionary business decision-making of financial institutions, end quote. Time will tell as to how strict these guidelines are and whether any more meetings are reported on or denied as having occurred. Moving on, Ignites Asia reports that CSRC has for the first time explicitly stated that all public fund managers should establish Communist Party units in order to carry out, quote, party activities, end quote, with a specific clause added in May 2022 in its rules on the supervision of publicly offered securities investment funds. Whilst business rules in China already require all companies, including foreign firms, to create a political unit, the rule has largely been seen as symbolic, though many foreign and domestic businesses have them. Industry commentators noted 
that in the case of 100% owned foreign entities, it was unlikely that the units would have any executive function as the party committee and company board would generally not overlap. However, in the case of Sino-Foreign joint ventures, especially those with a state-backed Chinese partner, it would be likely that a senior executive would be selected to represent the party at a high level, including on the entity's board. As with the regulatory imposed limits on executive compensation covered earlier in this episode, the move to embed Communist Party cadres into asset and wealth managers operating in China is seen as a move by central authorities to impose tighter controls and oversight on the industry, something that President Xi Jinping has actively worked to do for the last few years. Whether the move dampens foreign enthusiasm to enter China's asset and wealth management space remains to be seen. Next up, Beijing News reports that China's ESG fund sector is now reaching an aggregate asset under management level of 250 billion renminbi, with an influx of new products expected this year. As a result of this growth, industry analysts are warning that, similar to other markets which have seen a surge in ESG investing, risks of greenwashing are increasing, with firms incentivized to falsify their green and sustainable product credentials in order to gain access to more attractive financing, taxation incentives, speedier regulatory approval, and increased investor interest. The warnings come as other markets see increased regulatory attention and in some cases arrests, over allegations of greenwashing, as covered in previous episodes. With 37 new ESG funds, raising total AUM of 7.4 billion renminbi, launched as of June 7 this year, bringing the total number of products to 248, the need for unified, clear standards on ESG to be implemented with potential fines and other penalties for firms caught greenwashing, is likely to increase. Australia's ASIC may provide a blueprint for this, with the Australian financial regulator releasing the results of its year-long review of ESG funds on potential greenwashing, in which it details how existing regulations apply to ESG funds and greenwashing. On June 1st, green finance guidelines issued from Beijing, came into effect. These guidelines request Chinese banks and insurers to establish grievance mechanisms to address clients' ESG risks. Whether these mechanisms are adequate to address greenwashing concerns remains to be seen. Next up, GMEN News, citing data from Chinese data provider Wind, reports that Chinese insurers have invested 12.3 billion renminbi in their sibling fund houses, investing in 90 public funds over the first five months of 2022, providing estimated annual management fees to the fund managers. Nine of the top 10 fund managers received at least 300 million renminbi in investment from their insurer counterparts, with the largest, CPIC, a joint venture between China Pacific Insurance Company and Allianz, a Chinese insurer and German insurer respectively, receiving 6.4 billion renminbi. Bond funds received the highest allocation, 
receiving nearly 8 billion RMB in aggregate investment over the first five months of the year, with money market funds second, attracting 2.9 billion RMB. Balanced funds came third, with 989 million RMB, and equities funds recorded inflows of 419 million RMB, likely due to the volatility in markets. Next up, the Shanghai Securities Journal reports that fraudsters have been posing as the star manager of HSBC's fund management company joint venture in China, HSBC Jin Trust Fund Management, and running investment scams via WeChat, a Chinese super app. Despite police and other authorities being contacted, the perpetrators appear to still be engaging in fraudulent activity, approaching potential victims in group chats, claiming they can offer investment plans with incredibly high return rates in a short period of time. Other foreign fund houses in China have also seen their likeness appropriated, as covered in previous episodes, and it is something they should be vigilant against. And now on to China fund news. The China Securities Journal, citing data from WIND, reports that 1,056 new fund managers have joined the industry over the last two years, with 621 joining in 2021, more than double the amount in any one year since 2016. This brings the total number of fund managers within China's fund industry to 3,019, and fund managers with less than two years of experience now account for 35% of the workforce. Those with two to five years experience comprise 30%, those with five to 10 years account for 29%, and the rest are those with over 10 years experience. New hires in 2022 have been a bit slower, with 192 new asset managers joining over the first five months of the year. As demand for asset and wealth management services increases, ensuring that there is adequate talent to meet investors' needs will be increasingly watched by fund managers. Chinese regulators have disqualified 231 private funds to date this year, as authorities continue to enact strict controls to ensure compliance and legal standards are adhered to. The current rate of disqualification would put 2022's projected total number of disqualified funds at a lower amount than seen across the 2018 to 2021 period, which saw an average of 1,033 funds disqualified annually. Recently, regulators have utilized temporary penalties to bring wayward private funds into line and implement internal control measures to increase their compliance. Battered by poor fund sales and increasingly hostile stance towards them, over half of the blockbuster equity fund launches by China's star fund managers have suffered losses since their inception, with some fund houses now appearing to shift away from the model and contemplate new ways to grow their fund business in a sustainable way that adheres to long-term investing principles. At time of recording, 184 out of 316 actively managed equities funds, which raised in excess of 5 billion RMB over a few days of their fundraising period, had reported losses, with 79 funds falling by 20% or more. 
With most funds managed by star managers reportedly not raising more than 300 million RMB this year, no doubt in large part due to volatility in equities markets, the day of the star manager may be drawing to a close in China's fund management space. So, that is it for the week of June 13 through 17 in 2022. From our perspective, certainly the move made and then the subsequent denial by CSRC regarding putting limits and criteria around senior executive pay is something that industry players, particularly foreign ones in China, should be aware of, as that may significantly impact their ability to hire talent. It is somewhat interesting that CSRC has denied the meetings taking place, as both they and the Asset Management Association of China have released guidelines around this. So whether or not we see proof that the meetings never occurred, or whether any foreign asset managers are brave enough to provide proof that they did happen, would be interesting to see unfold. Singapore was fairly quiet this week, with the decline in fund flows somewhat expected given volatility across the equities markets, and it's good to see that robo-advisors are entering into more exclusive arrangements with fund managers to act as digital distribution platforms for them. It is concerning seeing the results of the surveys by DBS and Manulife, which corresponds to a survey from last episode, indicating that investors in Hong Kong and Singapore are relatively unprepared for retirement, and many of the respondents are yet to reach out to a financial advisor or to take tangible steps to prepare for their eventual retirement and ensure that they have adequate financial plans in place for that. However, those are just our thoughts. Let us know your thoughts in the comments below. If you enjoyed this episode, do give us a like and share with someone else who you think may enjoy it. If you didn't enjoy this episode, thank you very much for sticking around this long, and do let us know in the comments what topics you think we should have covered. From all of us at 3 Lions AWM, thank you very much for tuning in, and we hope you join next time. <laughs>